Hello and welcome to EU History Explained. In this series we try to make sense of today's European Union by looking at its history. As we've seen from previous episodes, the impetus for European integration came largely from within Europe, in a context marked by the Cold War between the East and the West. But the United States was also a key player in that context and indeed a strong proponent of European integration. In the next two episodes we'll look at the way it viewed European integration and the role it played in this process. We can distinguish two main phases in the US attitude towards European integration. A first phase from the end of World War II to the end of the 1960s marked by a strong support. And the second phase, starting from the Nixon administration, where increasing economic and political competition from the European economic community results in a more ambivalent US attitude. After the end of the Second World War, a convergence between American and Western European strategic interests prompts the United States to stay engaged in Europe and to support the push towards an integrated Europe. But what are the American interests? Firstly, they want the Soviet Union to be contained, both in terms of territorial expansion and political influence in Western Europe, where countries such as Italy and France witnessed the emergence of strong communist parties. But the Soviet Union is not the only problem. As a second interest, Germany must be prevented from threatening European peace and stability again. Thirdly, the US needs not only a stable Europe that can resist the Soviet threat, but also a prosperous, efficient and integrated market that is open to US products and mass culture. Fourthly, the US has an interest in laying the foundations for gradually reducing its own burden for Europe's defence. An integrated Europe with a revived West Germany firmly anchored in its midst can offer the US a solution for achieving all of these goals. And the supranational Europe, where national governments would delegate some power to a common institution, would be a much more efficient partner for the United States compared with multiple national centers of power. And what about Western European governments' interests? These include military guarantees against a strengthening Soviet threat, political support against domestic communist parties and economic assistance for post-war reconstruction. In this context of converging fundamental interests, the Europeans will push for the US continued presence in Europe, and the US will respond positively to this call. The first milestone to mark continued US involvement on the European continent is the launch in 1947 of the Marshall Plan, a massive aid package for Europe's economic recovery. The key reasons for this initiative lie in the need to rebuild Germany's economy in a way that is acceptable to the other Europeans, the need for socio-economic and political stabilization of Western Europe, and an ambition to revitalize international trade. The funds being pledged carry a key condition. The US insists that they be managed jointly by the Europeans 
through the creation of the Organization for European Economic Cooperation, the OEEC, thereby driving the very first attempt at European integration. But the Marshall Plan still doesn't guarantee the US continued military commitment that Europeans are anxious to achieve. And the US is reluctant to join a military alliance. Eventually, Europeans will manage to convince the US of the need to create NATO, but only after a worsening of Cold War tensions and the creation of a military alliance among Western European states themselves, the Western Union. While falling short of the US ambition for fully integrating European economies, the OEC does create an important precedent in economic cooperation, which will be followed a few years later by Francis Schumann's plan for a European Coal and Steel Community, a supranational body created to manage member states' coal and steel resources. The US had initially hoped that the United Kingdom would take the lead on integrating Western Europe. But when it becomes clear that the UK has no intention of taking up this role, the United States strongly supports the French initiative. A second important integration project is the attempt to create a European defence community, a French proposal in response to US calls for the rearmament of West Germany. Although initially a French-sponsored plan, its success quickly becomes a key strategic objective for the United States. Not only can it offer a solution for making Germany's rearmament acceptable to the other Europeans, but it can also help ensure that Europeans take greater responsibility for their own military security, thereby allowing the US to reduce its military commitment in Europe. Accordingly, the US strongly and overtly pushes for a swift ratification of the treaty and even threatens serious consequences should the plan be allowed to fail. Despite this, the European defence community will fail, with the resulting fiasco representing a key turning point in the US attitudes towards European integration. While still favouring integration projects, the US support for such initiatives will in future be much less active and overt. This is also why the US adopts a lower profile during negotiations among Western European countries in creation of the European Economic Community. While the US is very supportive of this project, which aims at the very supranational economic integration the US had hoped for at the launch of the Marshall Plan, it is also soon to see the potential challenges for the US in terms of discriminatory effects on trade. However, in this early phase, the political objectives that we mentioned earlier are still largely prevalent over economic considerations. At the same time, the US implements a number of mitigating measures to make sure that the new project is anchored within the Atlantic framework. For instance, by upgrading the OEC and launching a new gap round, notably to reduce European tariffs on American goods. The 1960s are marked by a number of challenges that risk threatening US support to European integration. While the US under Kennedy favours an outward-looking, supranationally integrated Europe 
with the UK among its members, the French president Charles de Gaulle has a totally opposite vision. He advocates a French-led, protectionist and firmly intergovernmental Europe and is a staunch opponent of British membership. With regards to the US, while still recognizing its role as guarantor of Europe's security, de Gaulle wants to limit its influence as much as possible. These divergences cause strains in relations. On a political level, the US is outraged by a series of initiatives by France. De Gaulle's veto on UK membership, his initiative to sign a bilateral treaty with Germany that is seen as a competitor to the Atlantic framework, and lastly his decision to withdraw from NATO's integrated military command. On an economic level, the European economic community increasingly starts becoming a competitor for the US, and the US experiences balance of payments deficits. In 1962, the first serious trade dispute between the US and the European economic community erupts, the so-called Chicken War. Tensions in the monetary realm also start to emerge. However, throughout the Kennedy and Johnson administrations in the 1960s, these challenges don't alter the US overall support for European integration as the traditional reasons for support still remain, which center on the need to create a solid and prosperous Western European bloc to counter the Soviet threat. Once more, political considerations prevail over economic concerns and also on an economic level, the benefits in terms of trade creation are still considered to outweigh costs, which are mitigated by further negotiations within the GATT. But things will change over the next few years, as we'll see in the next episode. Thank you for watching and don't forget to check out parts two. This podcast is co-funded by the European Union. The European Commission support for the production of this podcast does not constitute an endorsement of the contents which reflects the views only of the authors and the Commission cannot be held responsible for any use which may be made of the information contained therein.